You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information on any of the topics you hear today, or to learn more about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. Good morning. Uh, thank you very much uh, for joining us today. I apologize for the delay due to some technical difficulties. My name is Thamana Salikuddin, Director for South Asia Programs at the U.S. Institute of Peace. USIP is this country's national nonpartisan independent institute founded by Congress and dedicated to the proposition that a world without violent conflict is possible, practical, and essential for U.S. and global security. Uh, please feel free to join our discussion today by leaving us questions in, on the USIP event page in the chat function. Today we will be discussing Kashmir, an area that is, is central to stability in South Asia and is often the, can be the spark between the two nuclear powers of India and Pakistan. Um, famously, Bill Clinton, President Bill Clinton in 2000 called it the most dangerous place in the world. This month, last year, in 2019, significant changes took place in Kashmir that have reverberated not only in Kashmir, but in the whole region. At the end of July 2019, there were rumors abounding in Jammu and Kashmir that changes were afoot. However, there was no information about what was going on. Tourists were evacuated. The famous Hindu pilgrimage to Vaishnu Devi was abruptly cut short. External journalists were asked to either leave the valley or stay in a designated location hundreds of local politicians, civil society activists, and others were preemptively arrested. Security forces flooded the area. Something was definitely going to happen. I happened to be flying from New Delhi to Srinagar that morning of August 5th. Communications has been, had been cut off from Kashmir and we had no way of finding out what was happening. When we landed on the ground in Srinagar, we found out that on August 5th, 2019, Prime Minister Narendra Modi and the Indian government made an unprecedented change to the country's constitution to revoke the autonomy provisions for the state of Jammu and Kashmir, to split it off from the territory of Ladakh, and to downgrade it both from statehood to union territories. Since then, there's been a significant crackdown on political and civic freedoms in the Kashmir Valley, and this has drawn some substantial international scrutiny. Overall, the sudden unilateral changes in Kashmir status may be one of the most consequential developments in the region. Today, we are joined by two excellent scholars to discuss what do these changes mean for India, Pakistan, for Kashmiris, and the region. First, I'd like to introduce Dr. Hapiman Jacob, who's an Associate Professor of Diplomacy and Disarmament at the Jawaharlal Nehru University in New Delhi. He's a columnist with The Hindu, and he hosts a weekly show on the national security at thewire.in. He's the author of many books, and he has recently published on the USIP website, you can find it, a special report entitled Toward a Kashmir Endgame, How India and Pakistan Could Negotiate a Lasting Solution. I'd like to turn it over to Hapiman to discuss his report and, and talk about the significance of these events one year later. Thank you, Tamanda. Um, delighted to join this panel with you and uh, and Samir. Um, as you correctly uh, said, I think this is an important discussion. Kashmir, um, and I, I agree with you. Kashmir um, is central to India-Pakistan relations, stability between India and Pakistan, India-Pakistan relations, and um, stability in, in in South Asia, as it were. Be it uh, um, as far as conflict escalation, 
or peace building, uh, Kashmir East Central uh, to the region. Um, so to begin with, what I will do is that uh, the paper that you referred to, Tamanna, uh, that I wrote for USIP recently, I just sort of briefly um, um, uh, tell you what my major arguments are in the paper. Um, I, I, as all of us know, there has been a lot of uh, discontent in Kashmir since August 2019, uh, when the Indian government sort of read down Article 370 of the Indian Constitution, which basically meant that taking away the special um, status that was given to Jammu and Kashmir, the erstwhile state of Jammu and Kashmir, and split it into two union territories, bringing them directly under the um, uh, jurisdiction of the federal government in New Delhi. Uh, I think the second point that I'm making in the paper is that there is very little appetite. If you, if you look at the statements coming out of New Delhi uh, officials or politicians, there is very little appetite for any engagement. Um, the Indian government has basically closed off all options for uh, a negotiated settlement of Kashmir uh, with Pakistan or the dissident parties uh, within Jammu and Kashmir. So New Delhi seems to uh, the strategy seems to um, uh, is, is to sort of tighten control in Kashmir while creating space for more pro-India, quote-unquote, uh, politics in Jammu and Kashmir. Uh, but this approach, I, I argue in the paper, has intensified uh, the disaffection um, while opening the door for more increased political interference by the Pakistani side. Um, the third point that I'm trying to make is that uh, the Pakistani side has responded by sort of... Uh, putting together a certain a strategy which basically accuses India or rather Kashmir shame um, India in international forums um, by violating um, or accusing India of violating the Shimla Agreement of 1972. As all of you know, this is one of the foundational agreements as far as India, Pakistan um, and the management of Jammu and Kashmir concern, uh, is concerned. Um, I also argue in the paper that uh, these mutually uh, exclusive um, and highly militarized strategies have the potential to dangerously re-escalate. I say re-escalate because we keep seeing escalation between the two sides, uh, re-escalate tensions between India and Pakistan. And finally, I conclude the paper uh, uh, with a positive note. And I argue that although bilateral attempts at contract resolution in Kashmir um, seem very unlikely in the near future, both sides may eventually come uh, to see the advantage of talking to each other. And as and when the time is ripe, uh, I argue in the paper that perhaps the two sides could potentially revisit the so-called Kashmir formula that was negotiated through the back channel uh, between the two sides uh, through interlocutors from 2004 to 2007. Um, now, the, the one question that I'm trying to um, ask in this presentation is whether uh, New Delhi has a theory of uh, victory. Um, or an end game um, uh, in, in Kashmir? Uh, if yes, uh, what does that look like? Now, let me sort of take you through some of the um, um, aspects of this um, uh, end game or theory of victory as far as New Delhi is concerned. And I sort of talk about four strategies that New Delhi is um, um, uh, adopting in Jammu and Kashmir uh, in detail. I just basically tell you what, uh, what, what some of them are. Uh, the first strategy seems to be uh, sidelining the moderate separatists uh, in Kashmir, like the Hurriyat Conference, etc., etc., and mainstream politicians in Jammu and Kashmir, as, as many of you know, several of the mainstream political uh, leaders are still in detention, like the former Chief Minister Mehba Mufti is in, uh, in detention. Uh, two of the former Chief Ministers, uh, Farooq Abdullah and Omar Abdullah, were just released a few months ago from detention. So these are, this is one way of uh, um, sidelining the mainstream political parties. Um, in Kashmir. And, and second strategy seems to be creating a new political formation in uh, the Union Territory of Jammu and Kashmir 
and creating new uh, political narratives uh, within Kashmir. Uh, now, clearly, new political uh, there are new political demands today. For example, the new political party that was uh, um, inaugurated earlier this year, the Apni Party, or uh, our own party, uh, roughly translated, uh, is seeking uh, not for the restoration of Article 370 or the special status, but it is seeking um, that New Delhi should restore statehood to Jammu and Kashmir and not keep uh, Jammu and Kashmir under the federal administration as it were. So new new political formations, new political narratives, new political demands as it were. The third uh, strategy seems to be to sort of shift the focus. And New Delhi has always found it uh, that it is, it, is, it is not fair that all the focus comes to Kashmir and there is very little focus on uh, what it calls the Pakistan-occupied Kashmir and the um, and 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 the, and the uh, northern areas, as it were. So it seems to be uh, today deflecting much of the attention that is on Jammu and Kashmir to um, um, the unsettled status of uh, the Pakistan-occupied Kashmir. Um, so the the Indians Indian side have have been making this argument uh, that we will talk about Kashmir. Yes, the Pakistan-occupied Kashmir, not on the question of Jammu and Kashmir. The fourth strategy is sort of to slowly uh, and steadily uh, withdraw the restrictions that have been imposed in, in Jammu and Kashmir. And, and if we have time uh, later on during the Q&A, I can talk more about these restrictions. Now, the question is, uh, what are these, what can these um, uh, strategies uh, adopted by the government of India do in Kashmir and what is it that they cannot do in Kashmir? Now, let's sort of try and analyze these strategies. I think um, looking at these strategies, one thing is very clear that these strategies are clearly unilateral in nature. Um, part, the, the government of India do not seem to, uh, does not seem to uh, take on board the popular demands of the Kashmiris, uh, the disaffected dis Kashmiris in, in Srinagar or in South Kashmir, as it were. Uh, these strategies also do not take on board the Pakistani sensitivities on the question of Kashmir. Um, the uh, What is also important to note is that New Delhi's vision at this point of time for Kashmir or the end game for Kashmir um, is, is a, is a, is a short-term one, it's a tactical one to contain violence and to manage the narrative. That's about it. It is not thinking um, in terms of how this is going to pan out in the in the years to come. So to that extent, I would, I would argue that New Delhi's Kashmir policy is uh, clearly tied to the uh, ruling party, Bharatiya Janata Party's understanding of uh, domestic politics in India and how Kashmir potentially could uh, feed into their own uh, domestic political fortunes as it were. Um, to the extent that uh, this is a non-conciliatory and winner-takes-all theory of victory that New Delhi has adopted in Kashmir, um, I would argue that this potentially could have long-term negative uh, implications for India's, India's approach to Kashmir. Um, there seems to be um, um, no grand strategic plan in New Delhi, the way I see it, to pacify Kashmiri sensitivities um, um, and, 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 and no uh, appetite to sort of set it uh, in the traditional sense of the term, uh, the Kashmir conflict with the Pakistani side. Let me also briefly uh, summarize, um, now that I have, don't have too much time, maybe I have two minutes, so I will summarize also the Pakistani strategies as I see them. Uh, as I said earlier, the, um, one of the major planks of the Pakistani strategy uh, seems to be to uh, Kashmir shame India in various international forums and coordinate condemnation um, of India with regard to Kashmir in various international forums. Uh, it hasn't really met with much success, I would argue. You probably have Malaysia, Turkey, China and Iran uh, joining up this bandwagon, but there isn't much support from elsewhere. 
The second, I think, strategy is a very, very crucial one. There seems to be conversation in Islamabad, certainly in tractor circles that I'm part of, uh, that um, um, Pakistani officials seem to be arguing, former officials seem to be arguing that by having done what it has done in Kashmir, New Delhi has basically um, um, uh, made the Shimla Agreement of 1972 null and void. Now remember, Shimla Agreement is one of the foundational agreements as far as India and Pakistan is concerned to manage the line of control between the two sides on the in, in Kashmir, etc. So if there is, if the if the Simla agreement is not valid anymore, this would have severe implications for um, line of control, etc. The third aspect is to sort of increase the heat as far as uh, India is concerned in Kashmir by sending in more uh, infiltrators, infiltrators across the line of control by engaging in more firing. When infiltration happens, there will be counter firing. Um, and to sort of coordinate among various terror groups like the um, LET or Hezbollah Mujahideen or even the um, new uh, formations that, that you're looking at in Kashmir as far as terrorist organizations are concerned. So there's more coordination among terror groups in the uh, valley. I think the, the underlying uh, logic seems to be that you create more pressure for India in Kashmir and the Indians will perhaps come to the negotiating table on the Kashmir question uh, and give up its zero-sum um, sort of approach to Kashmir. The, the trouble with that argument, of course, is that um, uh, Mr. Modi is certainly not going to be deterred by increased violence in Kashmir. So unless and until there is a spillover effect of what happens in Kashmir to the heartland of India, I don't think this is going to uh, really work that way. Um, uh, Tamana, do I have more time or should I leave it and um, um, uh, come back? During maybe we'll come back to you in the question and answer every month. So sure, thank absolutely. you very much for the presentation. Um, so I'd like to now turn it to Dr. Samir Lilani, who has also authored a great piece for us uh, as a special report available on USIP's website called India's Kashmir Conundrum, Before and After the Abrogation of Article 370. Samir is a senior fellow and director of the South Asia program at the Stimson Center, where he researches nuclear deterrence, interstate rivalry, crisis behavior, and counterinsurgency. Um, he has done extensive research on South Asian national security decision-making, including fieldwork in India, in Kashmir specifically, in Pakistan and in Sri Lanka. Um, Samir, I'd love to hear from you. You know, Happy Man really laid out the India-Pakistan aspect of this, but what we don't often hear is what is actually happening in Kashmir by the Kashmiris. And I think your paper does an excellent job of exploring that. So over to you, uh, Samir. Great, thank you, Tamana, and to um, all the USIP team um, and the Asia team at USIP. Uh, for making this possible for this event and, and for our, our reports, which uh, I really enjoy working on. And I, I'd be remiss if I did not mention my co-author, Jillian Gaynor, who is an instrumental part of uh, producing this report and doing the research with me and writing the report. Uh, unfortunately, she couldn't be here today. Uh, she, after completing uh, the research on this product, uh, moved into government and so is unable to participate, but uh, deserves as much credit as I. Um, so let me unpack a little bit, uh, like maybe three three elements, and some of it will intertwine with what uh, Habiman said. Some will be a little distinct. So the first uh, is, you know, how we got here. Uh, the second, uh, I'll try to talk a little bit about what happened post three seven, the abrogation three seventy post August fifth, and then briefly also touch upon like the end game strategy as I see it, you know, from my vantage point, uh, uh, thousands of miles away. Um, so, but the first part I think is pretty interesting is, you know, how how India got to this point where it had to make such a uh, enormous, extraordinary decision, um, you know, looking at the trajectory of violence and politics in Kashmir over the last 30 years, in fact, you were seeing a pretty significant improvement from the period of 2003 to 2012 
ceasefire agreement was signed, violence was steadily declining, uh, militancy was also in the decline. There was significant progress in the composite dialogue and back channel discussions. And at the same time, uh, around 2012, uh, the former RAW director and special uh, envoy on this, uh, A.S. Dillis, warned that this calm that uh, we were seeing in 2012, uh, at the end of 2012, where there was sort of this, the greatest lull in violence, he said the calm appears deceptive. And he elaborated on this, that you know there are most organizations were being degraded, but public attitudes in the Valley really hadn't changed substantially. There were very few political set concessions uh, that were being offered. There was still a lot of centralized control, even though uh, with a velvet glove on top, lots of corruption within the administrative state of Kashmir. Uh, and there were very sort of distinct sort of moments of flare up that were um, alarming, I think, for political leaders, both in Trinagar as well as uh, in New Delhi in 2008 and 2010, where you had these big street protests with uh, young teenagers uh, going out into the streets uh, for, for various sort of, you know, the, the, the incitement sort of started from one thing, but really galvanized over the course of just the interactions of uh, street protests and violence. Uh, and this is also reflected in a, uh, a major survey that was done by Chatham House back in 2010. It's probably the last big sort of comprehensive survey that was done of both the Valley, Jammu, and Ladakh as well, and um, also uh, uh, Pakistan's administered Kashmir as well. Uh, and what, what that study found is it's interesting because um, both governments sort of latched onto the findings that they thought were useful, right? So uh, it was very true that um, there was a lot of rejection of violence and militancy amongst people in the Kashmir Valley, uh, certainly in Jammu as well, and also rejection of accession to uh, Pakistan. But there was simultaneously a lot of disaffection when it came to the Indian state as well, and a great deal of public support for whatever it means to say Azadi or to, to be supportive of some, some sort of separatist or uh, quasi-autonomous um, uh, political objective. And that never really changed. And uh, Following through this low in violence from 2012, it's, the violence trajectory started rebounding. And it wasn't just armed insurgent violence, it's something that we discussed in the report as we call mass quasi-violent resistance. Uh, it is a type of resistance that uh, uh, occupies a spectrum between organized armed insurgency and nonviolent uh, civil resistance. Uh, some people call this unarmed collective violence. Consists of uh, activities like stone pelting, interdiction, security operations, uh, and uh, attendance of uh, militant funerals. Um, and look, it, it, to be honest, it's partly because of the political opportunity structure afforded to Kashmiris um, in India. This type of uh, quasi-violent behavior, it were to occur in a very authoritarian state, would be immediately quashed with barrel bombs and, and bullets and um, or, you know, large-scale uh, uh, firepower. Uh, in India, that's not the case. Uh, there is an effort or an act uh, or an effort to be restrained by the security forces uh, and by um, even the military forces. And so as a result, you have this sort of strange in-between space where uh, public you know, civilians who are unarmed are confronting security forces uh, with, you know, with stones and, and other forms of, of interdiction to uh, express resistance, but also to inhibit and interdict their capacity to uh, conduct security operations. So uh, it, it's a unique form of, of uh, violence, we call it quasi-violence. And what we saw was when we were tracking the data on this um, through a lot of different data sources, that you were seeing sort of an increasing trajectory over time. Um, it really, you know, this, this type of activity certainly appears in the mid-2000s, flares up in 2008, 2010, but really starts to pick up after 2013, along with armed insurgency and spikes uh, around the time in 2016, around the, um, the death of Burhan Wani, which su su suggests sort of um, 
some sort of connection with armed insurgency. It's not synonymous. It's not, these are not armed insurgencies. This is a much more widespread um, and sort of public citizen um, activity. But at the same time, it seemed to have some sort of in tandem effect. Uh, at the same time, armed insurgency was also increasing during this period. Quasi-violence is related to it. Uh, but the insurgent groups were, or the insurgent participants were much more locally embedded, educated, personally motivated, and popularly supported. In, in the literature on um, uh, insurgency and civil war, they had greater social endowments. And uh, that meant, though, that they were a little less militarily effective, but they seemed to galvanize a much broader movement. Uh, Co-occurring with that was something that was also interesting that we tracked in the report, which was voter turnout. Uh, there was diminishing voter turnout, certainly in national assembly elections. In state assembly elections, it started plateauing. And I think part of the reason why they didn't have state assembly elections uh, when they were supposed to have them is because there was a high expectation that it would be uh, that you know, voter turnout would be very low. The last panchayat elections, um, the turnout uh, always gets sort of obfuscated because you sort of aggregate all turnout from Jammu and Ladakh and, and the Valley. But when you just look at the Valley, it was pretty astonishing how low the turnout was. And, and the fact that 65% of seats were uncontested altogether. Uh, so it suggested that there was diminishing support for the democratic institutions that had been established and sort of uh, so uh, you know, meticulously established, I'd say, sort of in the, in the 90s, they were starting to atrophy and people were losing faith in them. And so this is all to say that these trend lines were sort of, um, were quite poor for India going into August of 2019. But these things don't just disappear with the sudden sort of change in the constitution, right? So uh, part of the reason we go into detail explaining this is because these networks might atrophy, uh, but the motivations that were driving them uh, might only not only remain, but fester as, as Papiman talked about. So the, the next point I just wanna briefly touch on is what happens after 370. There are two general predictions that come out um, at least from the political apexes in, in, in the region. So one is this idea there's gonna be significant mass violence, a bloodbath as Imran Khan uh, discussed it, um, and, and mass genocide. And the other was sort of, you know, promise that it would be a return to normalcy within a few months by, uh, particularly by Home Minister Ahmed Shah. So there's no mass violence because the Indian state is actually quite formidable and familiar with counterinsurgency and how to conduct this apparatus effectively. They, they preemptively arrested most of sort of the, the nodes of these networks that were able to generate whether armed or quasi-violent resistance. They shut down communications and freedom of movement, which really introduced the capacity for coordination uh, and, and protest. Um, and, and it was a very, they sort of threw a lot of resources at, as the Indian government is capable and prone to do. Uh, so it's a very resource intensive commitment to keep a lid on this activity. At the same time, there was no return to normalcy uh, because of, you know, uh, containing, uh, continuing fear and distrust and a lack of compliance. So there's lots of political resistance that probably bubbling below the surface. The few reports that come out um, through journalism and even through think tank reports like those published by ORF suggest that uh, there is a lot of uh, animosity and, and disaffection, as, as Fabian said, uh, and also insufficient follow through on state promises of economic injections and investments. Now, part of this is a result of the COVID pandemic, but a lot of this was visible even prior to the lockdowns that took place in, in, in April. So I think I'd liken this, and the analogy I use is a software virus. You can hit the restart button um, on your computer, but if the software has a virus, it's not going to disappear. And in this case, I think that was uh, what I would expect and what a report sort of predicts is that you'll see the resumption of this. It might be more effectively contained because there's a much more suppressive uh, state capacity um, in, in the area, and they might, might sort of use more um, uh, drastic measures to, to constrain it, but uh, it's likely that that stuff is festering. So briefly on where we're going in the end game, 
Um, you know, I think there are basically, you know, there's essentially one stra broad strategy with a lot of different tactics, which is, it seems to me that they're trying to, trying to implement a violence management strategy with injections of money to spread amongst political elites. Uh, as Hoffman said, sidelines are the old political players bring in and elevate new ones, uh, compliant political parties with a heavy security force presence and have some exercise of remote control from Delhi. There are two elements that I think are disconcerting that are also potentially going to bolster this. One is political engineering or gerrymandering, as we call it in the United States, uh, through the delimitation uh, of, of new assembly constituencies. And the idea would be that you'd be able to sort of uh, have a, a, a thin majority even run out of Jammu with uh, mostly BJP or BJP um, uh, 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 affiliates or, or, or uh, allies. Uh, but the other is maybe more long-term revolutionary strategy of demographic engineering. And uh, th here, the, the, the data is really unclear. It's very hard to discern what's actually going on. Obviously not being there, it's hard to see. But if this is, this is certainly something that Kashmiris on the ground fear. Uh, and you know, one manifestation of this is through the domicile law, but that would obviously take many years. It's not something that can be, again, happen overnight. Um, so in general, I think these sort of amount to indefinite containment strategies. Uh, you're not going to change mass sentiment uh, and sort of uh, uh, allay the, the the sentiment for resistance or or some sort of autonomy or or separatism. Uh, it's only going to it would take if it does erode, it would take decades to do it. Which means, in the conclusion, I think that India seems likely to be bogged down, um, pouring political, economic, and security resources into Kashmir uh, for years to come. Thanks so much, Samir. Both your papers are so interesting and have so much to unpack and discuss, so I, I hope we can get into some of that discussion here, and I welcome the audience to add their own questions on the USIP website. Um, you know, you both talked about a little bit about what India's sort of plan was going into this and why they came to this unilateral decision. Um, it was unpopular within Kashmir, but in the rest of India, it was highly popular, it was welcomed. Um, you know, even members of the opposition Congress party supported the revision of Article 370, and if there was any critique, it was on how it was done. And they laid out some justifications, uh, you know, controlling the militancy, limiting Pakistan's influence, creating space for more pro-Delhi politics, stopping corruption, and bringing development and investment to Kashmir. I want to ask you both, how do you think they've done? Have they reached any of these stated goals? And specifically, I, I do want to focus on the democratic institutions that you both raised, um, you know, have they actually been able to create some credible politics that is pro-Delhi by, you know, even with the arrest and continued detention of many of, you know, Kashmiri politicians? And related to that is the suppressive state capacity that Samir mentioned. I mean, what is the end game? I mean, does it just remain at that level? Is where, How do they actually see themselves easing out? Um, you know, some critics have said, within India that they, they jumped in very quickly, but that there isn't necessarily a, a way out. So I welcome your thoughts on uh, India's goals. Should I go Happy first? Right, right. Uh, thank you, Tamanda. I, you know, I, the other day I uh, wrote an article in The Hindu um, in which I sort of made the argument that there has been this um, national myth-making in India about, about Kashmir. And, I, and, and my argument essentially was that, um, you know, the reason why there is this widespread acceptance in India about what was done in Kashmir last year in August was because for, for, for so many years, for so many decades, and not just the BJP government, but also successive Congress governments and others have made this sort of uh, uh, narrative that Article 370 is the 
mother of all problems as far as Kashmir is concerned, number one. And number two, Kashmir is being bankrolled by the, um, you know, the taxpayers' money in the rest of India. And I basically argue that both of these arguments are, you know, basically nonsensical. Um, the fact of the matter is that there is a lot of money that is going into the government uh, of Jammu and Kashmir, but not to the economy of Jammu and Kashmir. In fact, the economy of Jammu and Kashmir is doing pretty well. In fact, doing doing much better than the other Indian states, as it were, thanks to the uh, land reforms that was undertaken by Sheikh Abdullah and all of that kind of stuff. So, um, you know, this 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 was a misconception, as it were. And secondly, Article 370 is the mother of all problems. If anything, Article 370 ensured uh, that uh, you know uh, there was less disaffection in Jammu and Kashmir. In any case, Article 370 was uh, uh, basically uh, what was. Of Article 20 was a skeleton um, uh, by the time it was abrogated or watered down last year. So um, I, I think I think the reason why, as you correctly pointed out, there was this overwhelming support in India for the government's move last year was, I think, um, 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 created by this sort of a uh, this sort of a background of a myth making uh, of the national myth making that that we had. Uh, you asked about the uh, credibility of local politics in Jammu and Kashmir. I mean, there are two ways of looking at it. One could put it, you look you look at the present and you would say, well, you know, um, there is little credibility for. Uh, mainstream politicians as it is in Jammu and Kashmir. Uh, the National Conference, the People's Democratic Party, the Congress Party, all of them stand, um, you know, uh, very little, um, all of them have very little support in Jammu and Kashmir uh, to begin with. Um, um, the Even the dissident parties like the um, uh, the Hurriyat Conference, they have uh, lost their support among the population. Um, the only guy who had some support among the population in South Kashmir was Gilani, who's just, just retired and he's, he's basically stepped down from the leadership of the Hurriyat uh, Gilani faction. Um, so, politics in general, uh, mainstream politics in general hasn't had much support among the Kashmiris. Now comes the uh, new politics and new narrative that the government of India is supporting in the in the, in the shape of Apni Party, for instance. So that would have much less, um, you know, salience and credibility within Kashmir. So uh, that's one way of looking at it. The other way of looking at it is that wait, you know, uh, in, in 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 politics, anything is possible. I mean, you know, you never know. Two years down the line, uh, supposing the Apni Party is able to negotiate a deal with New Delhi and say. Um, all right, listen, we negotiated a deal with New Delhi and brought back statehood to Jammu and Kashmir. And if you create that sort of a that sort of a narrative in Kashmir, they will basically end up having some support in, in, in Kashmir and in Jammu. So um, while there is an overwhelming lack of support for uh, mainstream politics in general, uh, within the mainstream political camp, uh, you may have ups and downs of various, various factions. Um, in any case, the Kashmiris have always believed that uh, the mainstream political parties in Kashmir were collaborated with collaborators with New Delhi, etc., etc. Now, the uh, third point about the what's the way out for New Delhi. Now, I, I you know, I, I, I argue that this was easier. It was easy to take that decision. It was a very popular decision. It was easy to take that decision. It was slightly more difficult to implement that decision, right? I mean, you had to sort of, as Amir pointed out, um, um, a great deal of security presence had to be ensured. Uh, um, um, you had to detain political leaders, um, um, the stone perpetrators, et cetera, et cetera. So implementing that decision was slightly harder. Um, now, um, in the long run, the difficult part is to sustain that uh, decision, to sustain those major constitutional changes that have been taken, that have, that have, that have been 
be taking place in Jammu and Kashmir. So there is there is absolutely no easy way out of it. So my own feeling is that um, what the BJP has done um, in Jammu and Kashmir is clearly linked to its own domestic political agenda, as it were. Now, clearly, this is there is there is the ideological element to what has happened in Kashmir, etc. But from a from a from a purely from a strategic point of view, even from a um, medium term point of view, um, if New Delhi is not able to pacify uh, the population in Jammu and Kashmir, the people in Jammu and Kashmir, the agitators in Jammu and Kashmir, I think my own my own prediction is that uh, it would um, make New Delhi to sort of come back to the negotiating table through the back channel, perhaps with some of the Kashmiri leaders, including the dissident parties. And even with the Pakistani uh, Pakistanis, as it were. So I think I think there is a way out, and the way out is simply, in my in my understanding, and I'll stop with that. Um, you know, what what are the Pakistanis saying at this point of time? The Pakistanis have said uh, in 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 many ways that listen, we don't care about your Article 370 nonsense. We never believed that you give any special status to the Kashmiris. That was that was basically uh, an excuse and bahana. So you know, let's let's sort of uh, um, uh, cut this nonsense. Uh, the Kashmiris are saying. So what we are, the Pakistanis say, what we are concerned about is you are changing the the, the 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 borders of Jammu and Kashmir in some ways by making it a union territory. So statehood, withdrawal of statehood, your undoing of statehood is a major peace in that sort of uh, argumentation between India and Pakistan. So if the Pakistanis are saying that, listen, talk about the statehood, re restore the statehood. Kashmiris, many Kashmiris are also making that argument, at least certainly in the in the, in the mainstream political um, um, ecosystem, the argument is that return the statehood. Uh, New Delhi has now ruled out the returning of statehood. Both Home Minister Amit Shah and Prime Minister Narendra Modi have on various occasions said that we are open to restoring statehood when the time comes. So. There is a um, common minimum, uh, um, you know, agenda as it were, as far as all three parties are concerned, in my opinion. So that, to my mind, is perhaps the opening, as it were. Thanks. Thank you very much, Harvey. Um, uh, Samir, I want to turn to you a little with a little bit of a different question. You know, we often, when we talk about Kashmir, we talk about India is doing this and Pakistan is doing this. I want to focus more on the Kashmiris themselves, who don't, who are disaffected largely from India because of the. You know, as you both know in your papers, the large security presence, what they see as suppression of uh, communications, media, politicians, human rights violations. You know, uh, in talking to Kashmiris, they say there are, you know, some militants, but they're, India is treating us as if we are all seven million terrorists. Um, on the other side, there is, there's not necessarily uh, a huge love of Pakistan either. So what is the situation on the ground right now for Kashmiris, and especially with COVID and you know continued suppression of some communications? And what is the um, you know the rate of disaffection, and how do they see a way forward? So this is a very good question, Tamana, and it, maybe it dovetails with something I was going to say in the previous one. So I'll try to combine the two. But it's like the simple fact is I don't know for a fact, right? I haven't been there on the ground in a while. Um, and I think the problem oftentimes is that most people don't talk to Kashmiris, not just the ones in Srinagar, but, uh, you know, in, in the in South Kashmir or around the valley. Um, and frankly, you know, Muslims in Jammu as well uh, and and the broader community in Jammu. So I, I think there needs to be a greater premium on paying attention to the voices that are coming out of these regions to understand or what their uh, grievances and expectations and sort of sources of disaffection are. From my limited vantage point from what I've read and for like people I have talked to, um, yeah, I think there is a great deal of frustration through the lack of agency, 
right? And this is sort of, you know, that you see this happen in, in lots of places around the world where sort of the initial sort of sources for rebellion uh, are sort of the, the belief that you don't have control over your own um, political life, economic life, uh, freedom of movement, access, opportunity. Uh, and so there is some sort of grievance, but that has also metastasized uh, because of experiences of violence. There's a really interesting paper um, uh, it was published in an international organization by a couple of scholars that talked about that basically did some uh, research in the valley and and found that sort of censuses or the exposure to violence uh, when Kashmiris are exposed to violence that it sort of really intensifies their anti-state uh, production. So it really sort of so, uh, distances their identity from the national government and much closer to sort of the separatist thought. So that exposure to violence has been going on for decades and there's been sort of new rounds of it. Um, even the, and one of the things we report, refer to in our report is, uh, I think it's a JNK police report that was, uh, you know, reported on uh, in, in the Indian media that uh, recruitment for militancy came uh, very close both temporally and spatially to where there were counter-militant operations. So essentially people were being recruited after they saw people that were close to them or proximate to them in their locality being killed by security forces. In theory, a treating uh, militants is supposed to create political space for normal politics. But in this case, what it was doing was really galvanizing uh, a resurgence in anti-state activity um, and, and beliefs. And so that's, I, I think part of the problem has been that the state has never really figured out like, what do you do after you kill people? Are they really effective? Uh, as you're ratcheting up these kill ratios. And even leading up to August 5th, there was a really good article talking about how the state is really like talking about uh, how effective they've been at eliminating terrorists. But beyond that, they haven't been able to offer a compelling political horizon to most Kashmiris. And the level of disaffection are just, we're all speculating here because there hasn't been any survey work. But that's another, I mean, there are two ways to sort of measure that. One is if people just do broad-based service. And I used to ask Indian military officers who served in the Valley and like, you know, who were GOCs and various corps commands there, how do you know when, when there was a big sort of push to the winning the hearts and minds strategy uh, and Operation Sadhavana, how do you know that it's working? And say so we know it's working because we're winning hearts and minds because we're, we're doing X, Y, and Z. We're creating public goods, we're providing security, we're distributing uh, medical sort of supplies and, and money. And this is the same argument, frankly, that the United States used to say when it came to Iraq or Afghanistan. We're doing lots of things, but we don't really know how it's being received or how it's being interpreted by people on the ground. But when there are a few instances of people sort of uh, in uh, studying what's actually sort of viewed from the ground, it wasn't actually working, it wasn't actually being received, it wasn't translating. Uh, and so that's something I think, you know, if, if any government is really concerned about this, they would actually try to actively measure that. But I never found the military was, was trying to do it, at least, you know, back in the um, uh, mid 2000s and like, uh, uh, five, 10 years ago. Um, but another uh, measure of this is voting behavior, right? So the proof is in the pudding. If, if uh, this big change is starting to generate um, real changes in, uh, political attitudes and beliefs about the future of the society and the state. Uh, you should see it measured uh, in economic activity, right? So there should be sort of greater confidence from investors as well as business confidence, uh, consumer confidence. You should see that activity start to pick up and thus far it hasn't happened. And there's all sort of, you know, big confounding variable, which is COVID. Uh, but if this is to work, that's supposed to take place. The second is you should see political participation in all levels from local to state to national elections. And there it just, you know, it remains to be seen, you know, what happens over the next few years. But uh, one benchmark we should use is what was the political activity prior to the insurgency? So everyone look, looks at sort of the trend lines, what happened in the last election and where we are now. If you look at the last election, 
anything that's a minor improvement looks better. But really, we should be measuring it based on what happened in the, the voter turnout in the 1980s was the highest it's ever been. It outstripped uh, the valley, outstripped Jammu and Ladakh voter turnout. That's never been the case since then. So until you see, I, I don't think you can measure normalcy until you get to that point. And that's, that's a long way down the road. Just to follow on, I do want to ask you a little bit, you know, in your research, you talk about quasi-violence, and I, I'd like to know, you know, at USIP, we talk about nonviolent action, and our program on nonviolent action looks at individuals and organizations facing restrictive, oppressive, and or authoritarian forms of governance, and they can employ hundreds of nonviolent methods to amplify their voices and challenge the power dynamics and press for reform. So, I mean, we support this as a peaceful way to end oppression or to press for change, but how do you see this as different from what you define as quasi-violence? And, and many would argue in Kashmir that this is the only path they have to stand up to what they see as, uh, you know, state oppression. Yeah, so this is, this is uh, we're still, I'd say, uh, I'm still thinking about this, but look, there were, there's always been sort of a, a, a history of nonviolent protest in Kashmir. There were bums, partals, uh, there are lots of sort of unions that organize and, you know, do street protests and raise their voice and, and express their voice uh, and discontent uh, to the state. My sense is that that didn't really get anywhere. And maybe it was the younger generation that decided that they were going to do something that was more assertive. Uh, they weren't going to take up the gun because that's basically a death sentence. The, again, the, the, the attrition rate of, of militants is very high. Uh, so they were taking up other forms of resistance like throwing rocks. And something about the asymmetry inhibited maybe CRPF or police forces from just mowing these kids down as they could have if they chose to. So again, there, I, I believe there's some degree of restraint that sort of is part of this dynamic from the Indian government side. Uh, but nevertheless, this seemed like much more desperate. People were putting themselves in harm's way. There's really interesting articles I mean, any any sort of uh, article that sort of depicts what like these interdiction sort of stories happen, uh, a militant is holed up in a in a house. They're surrounded by uh, you know security forces that are going in for you know an operation. There's a cordon laid around it, and people from the village just come out and start throwing rocks at them and trying to get in their way and physically interdict their ability to uh, maneuver. And that's extremely dangerous. The civilians are putting their lives at risk. It's also basically tantamount to uh, supporting a militant directly, it's direct material support. So it's a very strange place, but it does seem like this was widespread. It wasn't just a narrow set of people who were organized by the militants to be their overground workers. It seemed to be a broad base of people that was happening all over um, in the Kashmir Valley. And so that suggests to me that it was a new form of uh, you know, uh, resistance. People find sort of meaning in that activity as much as they find sort of uh, contributing effects to um, uh, the resistance movement. And and that's that I would think should be in some ways. I think that was more alarming for the state. I mean, there we quote one uh, security official back in 2013 who says basically the sentiment here is such that if they all had access to guns, there would be a mass insurgency. Uh, and I heard that repeated a couple other times by security officials in the Valley, which is always, you hear very different opinions when you're in the Valley versus even in New Delhi from the same sort of people who are employed by the Indian government. Uh, and so that to me suggested that there's something deeply uh, rotten uh, in, in the, the body politic. Thanks very much, Samir. Happy Man, I don't want us to close this conversation without touching on opinions in the situation in Ladakh and in Jammu. Um, very briefly, you know, with domicile law, with the standoff with China, if you can just very quickly, uh, you know, give us some insights on what it looks like when you're out uh, in the other parts of the erstwhile state of Jammu and Kashmir. 
unmuting us. Right. Um, uh, thanks, Ananda. Um, you know, I think I think it's important to sort of uh, bring in the China angle um, when we are talking about Jammu and Kashmir uh, today. Um, um, not just uh, because China has raised the Kashmir issue um, several times in the past, um, along with Pakistan in various international forums, um, but I think uh, what may have um, um, actually um, um, you know created more of a problem now for India. Um, is the Chinese reactions to the Indian claim uh, to excite China, as it were. So last year, when um, um, uh, the Home Minister of India declared in the Indian Parliament that Aksai Chin is part of the erstwhile princely state of Jammu and Kashmir, uh, there were very many adverse reactions from uh, the Chinese side. Um, so in, in, uh, clearly, China has interest in the uh, larger erstwhile princely state of Jammu and Kashmir, thanks, uh, one, because of the Aksai Chin, uh, sort of angle and also uh, CPEG uh, goes through um, um, the um, uh, part of part of Jammu and, Jammu and Kashmir as it were. Um, now the, uh, I mean, I have argued in the past that uh, the recent LSE standoff uh, may have something to do with, at least you know, in a approximate sense of the term, um, to do with the, the um, Indian Indian claims about Aksai as it were. So you you're probably looking at. Uh, Another party to the um, larger conflict in, in, in Jammu and Kashmir, um, especially in the um, you know in, in, in the greater um, 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 Tibetan region, as it were. So I think I think that has clearly complicated, uh, and certainly not in a positive sense of the term, uh, complicated the um, um, the Kashmir issue, conflict, Kashmir conflict or Kashmir dispute, as it were. Now, if you look at what is happening within Le, um, you know, it has its own politics, Ladakh. Le, lay things in a particular way, uh, Kargil things in a particular way. If you actually look at some of the reactions from within Kargil, people weren't too happy about um, uh, the, the, the constitutional changes because they always believed that um, uh, the, uh, the Ladakhis basically uh, dominated uh, Kargilis and there was this uh, politics between these two sides. But the Ladakhis were clearly uh, pretty happy about that. Uh, you know, the, the situation in Jammu is um, um, interesting. Um, you know, early on, um, soon after August last year, um, there was this jubilation by the local Jammuites about, you know, being mainstreamed into India. Now we are part of the, um, of the larger Indian Union, as it were, Article 370 is gone. But I think slowly, uh, but steadily, the reality has uh, started uh, seeping in. And the reality clearly is that the uh, Jammuites have benefited from Article 370 as much as, as, much as the Kashmiris have. Um, uh, they, they are not too keen on the um, so-called outsiders from Punjab or elsewhere coming into uh, Jammu and settling down there and taking their jobs away and uh, 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 their opportunities away as it were. So I think I think uh, uh, even the Jammu BJP has um, um, spoken about the need to have uh, more thought about, you know, allowing outsiders to come and settle there and take their jobs. Uh, and that is why if you look at the uh, domicile law, the domicile law is, um, uh, is, is they cleverly put together one. I mean, as, as, unlike a lot of what, what a lot of people think, uh, you know, there's, there's going to be this en masse uh, march of the outsiders into Jammu and Kashmir, and they will settle down there, and they will be given voting rights, and they will take away jobs. Uh, it's not that simple. I mean, you know, anyone who has resided in Jammu and Kashmir for 15 years, or has studied there for studied there for seven years, and appeared in the class 10 or class 12 examination can perhaps now apply for government jobs and uh, buy land there, et cetera, et cetera. It's not, it's not that simple. It takes a lot of time. So there is no immediate threat to sort of um, um, the identity as it were. 
as far as the Kashmiris are concerned. So I think I think um, um, you're right in sort of um, um, you know pointing towards the other um, aspects of the Kashmir conflict as well. There is the Jammu uh, bit there, uh, there is the Leh bit there, and I think what is now complicating the whole scenario is the uh, Chinese angle to the the, the the conflict. I think I think uh, focusing only on Kashmir may actually um, prevent us from uh, appreciating the bigger picture um, um, in, in, in some ways. Thank you for that. There's so much more we could discuss. I really um, encourage the audience to read the two papers. There's a lot of good material there. I just want to end very quickly from both of you. We started off by talking about the dangers of re-escalation. There's no appetite for discussion. This doesn't paint a very rosy picture. You know, what are the U.S. policy options? I mean, how can the USG prevent escalation between these nuclear armed states and, you know, try to address human rights violations and suppression of Kashmiris in uh, in the valley. Sorry, very quick, two minutes to each of you. Samir, why don't you go first? Sure, okay, yeah. Um, so I think they have to, you know, the, first of all, we have to accept the fact that the United States doesn't have uh, much influence or control over this process. We can offer, uh, you know, suggestions, insights, and try to broker sort of like uh, uh, discussions. But ultimately, this is sort of a, this is, uh, falls in the hands of the Indians and the Pakistanis and the Kashmiris uh, to the extent the Kashmiris are given a say or a vote. Uh, but I think that there are a few things we can do at the margins to express sort of, you know, to lay down some markers about what we think is uh, optimal and what can be the most useful. Um, so one of them is just encouraging dialogue. I think one of the one of the things I think was arresting or alarming uh, to people in Washington was not the choice of integrating Kashmirians or abrogating 370, but the lack of deliberation, the lack of sort of democratic deliberation, both within the state and outside and a process and timeline. For that, it was a major political move, and I think uh, United Democracy uh, it's incumbent to sort of bring people with you in that process. So the United States can express uh, its concerns about that. It can encourage sort of continuing di or resume dialogue with uh, Kashmiri parties that have been that have been sidelined, as well as um, uh, with the Pakistan government, because it's still at least viewed as a disputed territory. Or there are certainly parts of the dispute that still exist, even if you think it's on the POK side as opposed to the Indian side. Um, but I think the other thing is the United States can start to articulate um, the, the, the complications and the challenges that come from it. And I heard, you know, I, I heard a, a very astute uh, U.S. scholar talk about the, the, the issue that the United States is worried about with regards to India and the S-400 acquisition. And I think the same kind of language can be applied here, right? India is free to make its own choices, an independent, very powerful, strong um, thoughtful country. But if it chooses to go down a certain path, it's going to create complications for the United States. I think the foundations of the U.S.-India relationship have always been uh, strategic, primarily, but also uh, economic, but also this idea that there was, there's, there's sort of a shared set of values and ideas. And to the degree that that gets eroded, doesn't change the relationship entirely, but it starts to erode the bases of support, the threads of support, particularly from members of Congress or certain communities uh, in the country. But I also think it can affect the strategic calculus a little bit too. As I alluded to at the end of my talk, if India is truly bogged down in Kashmir, it really diverts capacity and resources to pivot elsewhere. As Hapman talked about, the, the, the challenge that's coming from China is much more um, intensified in, in recent years and frankly in recent months. Uh, and it's unclear that this, that sort of India's policies in Kashmir are helping it 
uh, to sort of get get past that and to, to reorient in, in another direction. So uh, it's there's not much the U.S. can do in terms of incentive structures, but it can facilitate and it can clarify uh, what the implications of choices are. Thanks, Samir. And Habimana, I'll let you have the last word. Right. Uh, thanks. Very quickly, what I'll do is that I'll sort of, uh, one, I want to focus a little bit on the potential for escalation uh, between the two sides on the, with regard to Kashmir, and also sort of come to the question that you asked about uh, uh, the role of the uh, other parties, uh, in particular the United States of America. Uh, and, you know, if you actually look at some of the um, uh, Indian reactions to terror attacks uh, in Jammu and Kashmir in the recent past, I think they have been uh, the Indian reaction has been very muted. And I think the reason why it has been muted is because these are low visibility attacks and um, haven't really um, had any political salience or significance within uh, Indian, Indian domestic politics. Uh, but, but if the intensity or the visibility of these attacks uh, go up, uh, you know, um, like it probably happened in Pulwama, um, I think the um, um, counterattacks by India, like it did uh, in Balakot, um, cannot be ruled out, I and mean, that's. I think that's where the two. That's when the two sides could potentially um, um, get into an escalatory ladder, as it were. Now the problem is that the the Indian side has clearly learned that uh, the you know the traditional Pakistani um, argument about tactical nuclear weapons that this and the other is basically hogwash. I mean that's that's not going to hold, and therefore there is enough space under the nuclear umbrella for it. India to carry out a conventional um, uh, kinetic action and get away with that. Uh, you know, of course, the Pakistanis would react, but that is something the Indian, Indian side can sustain. Um, now, with that lesson learned, India potentially could, if there is a high visibility attack, get back at Pakistan. Uh, now, on the other hand, the Pakistani side seems to be very emboldened by the LSE standoff, the random active control between India and China. The, you know, the argument being that uh, the Chinese have finally put shown India uh, its place and put India in its uh, in its place in South Asia. Um, now, given the fa and, and that may, I mean, I hope it doesn't, but that potentially could um, 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 create a situation in Pakistan where they think that hey, we have a, a situation where India is facing it, not crackle sort of a situation, and, and you know, let's sort of uh, uh, try and do something on on the line of line of control, as it were, along with China on the line of actual control. The problem with that strategy, I would argue, is that. Um, Modi has lost some face uh, during the LSE standoff with China, um, you know, in, in, in sort of April, May. Now, this uh, loss of face uh, will force him in some ways to react to Pakistan should the Pakistanis carry out a, or I'd aid and abet um, a, a sort of uh, high visibility attack in Jammu and Kashmir. So that's the sort of escalatory dynamics that we are looking at. But very briefly about what is it that other, other parties can do? I mean, traditionally, there was only one party in South Asia, and that was that was the United States of America. During the Kargil War, both sides sort of um, uh, did listen to the um, the Americans, and a certain uh, diffusion did take place in the in the, in, the, in the region. But today, I think, especially during the um, um, the the, the uh, Balakot strikes, it was very clear that there were so many parties in the fray, from the Emiratis to the Russians to the Americans, there were too many parties um, in the fray, um, um, you know, trying to diffuse the crisis. The problem today, I think, um, is that given the lack of um, sort of relative lack of interest that the Americans have in the region and the and the entry of the Chinese into the region in a big way will complicate um, uh, sort of any any sort of third party intervention or uh, mediation uh, between India and Pakistan in the region. Now, China will stand by Pakistan and China may even 
try and offset the American um, um, sort of attempts at um, um, you know peace or mediation in the region. I think that I think that China factor is going to complicate um, the the traditional sort of uh, framework that we had in South Asia, where the United States would come in, the two sides would listen to the United States, and sort of uh, there would be a conflict uh, uh, crisis mitigation as it were. I think that's something that needs to be uh, seriously looked at. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, we're out of time, but I want to thank you, Afiman and Samir, for your great work uh, in your papers and for joining us today for this discussion. I, we hope to continue looking at this conflict, which is, dominates really, uh, you know, all our thoughts about stability and um, and security in South Asia. So please continue to join USIP for these discussions. I want to thank the audience for joining us, and hope to see you next time. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org slash podcasts. Mm -hmm.